0: Audible.com is offering UCTV podcast listeners a free 30-day trial subscription and one free audiobook download. Just visit audibletrial.com UCTV to sign up. That's audibletrial.com UCTV. And thanks.
1: Good morning. I'd like to welcome you all to the Rady Children's Hospital and uh, UCSD Department of Pediatrics Grand Rounds. This is also the 15th annual Lenore Memorial Lecture. This lectureship was um, established by Dr. Robert Hamburger in 1999 and I guess Dr. Hamburger was not able to attend today. Um, This uh, lectureship always coincides with the Martin Luther King um, holiday which um, we had on Monday. For those of you who don't know Dr. Hamburger, um, he is a UCSD emeritus professor. Um, He is on staff here at Rady Children's um, and he came to UCSD from Yale in 1960 to join the newly established Department of Biology and then he was part of the founding fathers of the UCSD Medical School in 1965. Um, he was also assistant dean for the first eight years, and he served as chief of the Division of Pediatric Allergy and Immunology, a position that I hold now. Um, he held it for 20 years. We'll see if I make it that long. Um, Dr. Hamburger is well known for his works with um, uh, uh, concerning the mechanisms of IgE-mediated diseases. Um, the lectureship was formed actually in memory of the wife of one of um, UCSD's first allergy immunology fellows, um, Dr. Michael Lenore. Um, Dr. Lenore's wife, um, Andrea, died actually during a severe asthma attack at a young age. Um, So after completing um, fellowship here at UCSD, Dr. Lenore dedicated his life to helping patients with asthma, and particularly asthmatics in the inner city. Um, He was actually the first speaker in 1999 for this lectureship, um, and he spoke on inner-city asthma. Since that time, uh, the lectureship has had two main themes. One is prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of asthma, allergy, and immunologic diseases. And the other is health disparities, which you'll see um, today's talk fits absolutely perfectly in this. Um, And this uh, uh, lectureship is also focused primarily on the African-American experience. So with the exception of uh, 2011, which was my year, the speakers and topics have been extraordinary over the last 15 years, um, and continue. this this year definitely continues in that tradition. Um, We have a very special speaker today, um, Dr. Joan Reed, who is Dean for Diversity and Community Partnership at Harvard Medical School and School of Public Health. She's Associate Professor of Medicine and Society, um, Human Development and Health. Um, uh, She was raised around Boston, so she's really an East Coaster, attended Brown University, um, as an undergraduate, Mount Sinai as a medical student, and then she moved to Baltimore where she did her residency at Harriet Lane. Uh, before coming back to Boston where she um, did a fellowship in child psychiatry, then she also in Boston got um, a master's in public health, a master's in policy and management, and an MBA. Um, so she's got a lot of M's after her name. Anyway, Dr. Reed's primary focus um, is on mentoring and leadership development in the biomedical sciences Um, She's had continued funding from the NIH and Howard Hughes, among others, and has been recognized by the Institute of Medicine. She's on multiple government advisory committees, including several at the NIH. She's a well-respected teacher and has trained over 99 doctoral trainees, um, level students, 83 percent of which hold academic appointments around the country. Today, we um, have the honor of having her tell about her longest interest, which is that in health disparities and particularly in, in medicine. I'd like to welcome Dr. Joan Reed.
2: Thank you very much. Um, It is good to be in California. It is very, very (laughs) cold at home. Um, But thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, Given the importance of this week, the celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King's legacy and the inauguration of Barack Obama as he begins his second term as the 44th President of the United States, it seemed fitting to weave a tale that incorporates where we have been where we are now and the potential for where we need to go in the future. If Dr. King were alive today, he would see that great but uneven strides have been made in many areas. Educational doors once closed to large numbers of Americans have opened. Unemployment opportunities for women and people of color have expanded. Employment opportunities. Housing accessibility for the poor and disenfranchised is less restrictive. These advances notwithstanding, Dr. King's hope for equity remains unfulfilled. In this multiracial, multiethnic, multilinguistic society, we are hindered by the vicissitudes of poverty, racism, sexism, classism, and unfounded fears about sexual orientation our inability to embrace individual and cultural differences, to recognize that one out of every 10 people living in America was born elsewhere, to see that in his words, quote, our destinies are tied together, end quote, are obstacles to the fulfillment of his dream. Great steps forward have been made, but to quote Robert Frost, there are still miles to go and promises to keep. Sometimes it can be useful to look back where we have been, and for us in light of this place, uh, Department of Pediatrics and Rady Children's Hospital, and in this time, 2013, to recognize the significant role that children have played in advancing civil rights and justice in our country. I begin with the story of Sarah Roberts. A five-year-old girl enrolled in the all-black common school, the Abiel Smith School, the second black school opened in Massachusetts. Her father, Benjamin Roberts, attempted to apply her to other schools closer to home, white schools, schools that were less dilapidated, but was denied because of race. Mr. Roberts wrote to the state legislator and eventually the case rose to the Supreme Court of Boston in uh, 1848-49. The plaintiff lawyers for this case were Charles Sumner and Robert Morris. You see Morris depicted here, who was the second African-American lawyer in the United States. The judge ruled against the plaintiff. However, Sumner helped Roberts to bring this issue before the state legislature. And in 1855, Massachusetts became the first state in the nation to ban segregated schools for the entire state. Sumner continued to play a role in our nation in terms of injustice and slavery. Following the Civil War, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 was passed. Uh, It was formally titled the Act to Protect All Persons in the United States in their civil rights and furnish the means of their vindication. For me, this is interesting because most of the time when we talk about a Civil Rights Act, we're talking about the 1960s. And most of us don't know that the first one was passed in the 1800s. The act stated that individuals born in the United States were entitled to be citizens, all individuals, without regard to race, color, or previous condition of slavery or involuntary servitude. All citizens had the same right as white citizens to make and enforce contracts, to sue and be sued, give evidence in court, inherit, purchase, lease, own property, however, it did not convey these rights or protections to Native Americans on reservations. We return now to Charles Sumner, who had represented Benjamin Roberts in the case I mentioned previously. He was an abolitionist. and He's also the Massachusetts Senator who was actually caned in the Senate, you see this depicted here, for his speech against the Fugitive Slave Act. Probably the first and last person to be beaten down in the Senate. <laughs> Sumner would eventually craft the document that was passed as the Civil Rights Act of 1875 that guaranteed African Americans equal treatment in public accommodations, public transportation, and prohibited exclusion from jury duty. However, the Supreme Court of the United States would eventually rule this as unconstitutional in 1883. The Roberts case of 1849 was actually later cited in Plessy v. Ferguson, Uh, case of 1896, where the Supreme Court ruled in favor of separate but equal. Although segregation was banned in Massachusetts in 1855, clashes regarding integration and segregation continued into the 20th century. In 1965, Massachusetts passed the Racial Imbalance Act, ordering school districts to desegregate or risk losing educational funding again Massachusetts was a first. Judge Garrity's 1974 ruling found that the Boston Public Schools were unconstitutionally segregated. This is more than a hundred years later. And as a remedy a busing plan was developed by the Massachusetts State Board of Education. Here you see images from the busing controversy with group gathered in support of school integration and others protesting school busing. However gatherings were not always peaceful. Stanley Foreman received a Pulitzer Prize for his photograph, The Soiling of Old Glory, capturing a white student attacking a black man with the American flag at an anti-busing rally held at Boston City Hall Plaza in 1976. The struggle was not only felt by blacks, Richard Polite, who you see here of Roxbury, was attacked by blacks and eventually died two years later from his injuries. The struggle toward justice and equity is long fought. It does not involve one incident or one person or place in time, but many events culminating in change. We've seen that this includes courageous individuals who are willing to lead and to foster real sustainable change in our nation, dedicated, passionate individuals who do not accept the status quo. We know that the Brown v. Board of Education decision by the Supreme Court ruled that segregation of students in public schools violated the Equal Protection Clause of our 14th Amendment. Linked to this decision, we often see images of the Supreme Court or of Thurgood Marshall, But importantly, we need need to remember that this case represented five cases involving more than 150 plaintiffs, children, and their families. Children such as Linda Brown in Kansas, but also children in South Carolina and Virginia and Delaware and Washington, D.C. At the time of Brown v. Board of Education, ruling came out by the Supreme Court, there were 17 states in our country that required school segregation. Judges in Brown v. Board of Education found that black children received significant psychological and social disadvantage from the nature of segregation itself. The question was therefore, not only are the schools equal, as in a Plessy type decision, but whether the doctrine of separate was constitutional or unconstitutional. Findings from Dr. Kenneth and Miriam Clark, two psycho- psychologists, doll experiment was important in the judges' deliberations. Their work suggested that segregation harms children, and by extension, our society at large. And I'm going to return to this doll experiment later in this presentation. There are times when we are called to move from questioning to a position of walking the talk. Where our beliefs, our values are challenged. Where we can no longer push the uncomfortable to the background to leave injustices hidden in shadows. Times when images call us to action. In recent times, we think of the devastation of Hurricane Katrina or the senseless, unnecessary loss of lives in Newtown. During the 1950s, we turned to the image of Emmett Till. Emmett was a 14-year-old African-American boy from Chicago who was visiting relatives in Mississippi. He was beaten, and eye gouged out, and shot in the head before being thrown in the Tallahatchie River for reportedly flirting with a white woman. Published images of his mutilated body brought about a national outcry. In 1957, we have Arkansas where the governor deployed Arkansas National Guard to Central High School to block integration. In turn, President Eisenhower deployed the 101st Airborne Division of the United States Army to Little Rock and federalized all 10,000 members of the Arkansas National Guard taking them out of the hands of the governor. Just as in the past, Dr. King's words ring true. Today our very survival depends on our ability to stay awake, to adjust to new ideas, to remain vigilant and to face challenge of change. President Obama in his inaugural speech. Um, Presented a similar um, take on where we are and where we need to be. Quote We've always understood that when times change, so must we. That fidelity to our founding principles requires new responses to new challenges. That preserving our individual freedoms ultimately requires collective action. End quote. Each of our institutions has its own story. I'm sure that San Diego has its own story. Harvard Medical School did play a role in some of this change. And I want to share some of that with you. If I were to ask most of you, when did the first black matriculate at Harvard Medical School? Well, the answer I normally get is in the 1970s. But here you see, in 1850, Martin Robinson Delaney matriculated at Harvard. He was co-editor of the North Star with Frederick Douglass, and also authored in William Lloyd Garrison's abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator. He did not graduate from Harvard Medical School. He, with two others, uh, ended up having to leave after some students protested the presence of blacks at their school. You also see depicted a plaque erected by members of the Harvard Medical School class of 1869-70 commemorating the HMS grads who served in the Army or Navy during the Civil War. And you also see featured three-child psychiatrists, Robert Coles, who received a Pulitzer Prize for his work documenting children in the Civil Rights Movement. Alvin Fusant actually doing work with Freedom Riders during the Civil Rights Movement, where he served as a physician. And Tony Coles, Felton Earls, a psychiatrist whose work around justice spans not only children in the United States but internationally. The struggle toward justice and equity, um, as I said, is long fought uh, and does not involve one incident. Um, It also involved children and oftentimes we see images of adults and we see images of great adults such as Martin Luther King, but children were very much involved in the Civil Rights Movement. And here you see the Children's March in Birmingham, Alabama, where dogs and water hoses were turned against the children. It's not, and now or nor has it ever been, a matter of just integration or segregation. There's still much work to be done in achieving equity in offerings, equity in opportunity leveling the playing field and enabling our children to reach their full potential. Challenges remain and in some parts of our nation, even in 2012, we're still struggling with issues such as access to a voting booth. Poverty remains a challenge for millions of Americans, young and old. Here you see poverty rates in 2008, 13.2, up from 12.5 in 2007, and that poverty is unevenly distributed across racial and ethnic groups. US census figures from 2012 show a continuation of this pattern of increasing poverty with 50 million Americans, nearly 50 million Americans living in poverty, an increase from 49 million in 2010. This included a jump for both full time and part time workers. This poverty is not only based on are you working. Almost 20% of American children live in poverty. Hispanics and people living in urban areas have a higher chance of struggling to make it financially. And based on a formula implemented by the US Census Bureau, CBS reports that California topped the list of states most likely to bring about poverty. I'm going home later today. Poverty and minority status also relate to the quality of education children receive. Students in high minority schools are more likely to be taught by novice teachers. You see that in the, it's a brownish color, or teachers who are teaching out of field in the bottom graph. Students of color are less likely to attend schools that offer higher level science and math courses, such as calculus and physics, or to be involved in gifted or talented programs These patterns of denied opportunity have implications regarding student readiness to pursue or persist in college, particularly in the biomedical science and research fields. If we are to address the continued underrepresentation of certain racial and ethnic groups in the sciences, it's also important to understand student career intent. A review of student responses to the 1999 MCAT showed that for all racial and ethnic groups, a large percentage of students made their decision to enter medicine either before or during high school. This was particularly true for underrepresented minority students where 28% decided before high school and 22% decided during high school. So as we struggle with these issues around how do we bring diversity to the health professions, in many ways, it's too late if we start thinking about it once people are in college or later. Children are learning and making their decisions early on. The story is not all bleak, however. If we look at the last two decades of the 20th century, we've seen that for white, African-American, Hispanic, and Native American 10th grade students, there's a doubling of their expectation to attain a bachelor's degree. So more and more students are planning on going to college. A review of 2012 SAT, SAT, Student Intent for Advanced Studies shows a similar interest in earning a master's or doctorate level degree across all racial and ethnic groups. With a larger difference noted among students' intent for doctoral training, and here you see 17% for whites, 29% for Asian but 26% for African-American and 23 to 25% for Hispanic. The important part here is students are thinking about this, but how do we identify them? How do we capture them? How do we nurture them? How do we bring them along so that they can join us? Similarly, there was little difference in interest in pursuing majors related to biomedical science across all racial and ethnic groups or careers in health fields. More striking were the differences by gender, with 11% of males indicating an interest in health professions or related clinical science, and 26% of female students. So in many ways, there's a crisis. We know that our young men are not graduating from high school at the same rates. They're not going to college at the same rates. And their intent to enter our fields are not the same as for women. And if we actually look at some of the AMC data, we find, particularly for African-Americans, it's increasingly women who are matriculating. So that roughly 2 thirds of the entering student body uh, for African-Americans are women. So what are the implications for this as we move forward? Intent is one thing, but how does it relate to actual graduation? Here we see that whites obtained bachelor's degrees at twice at twice the rates of blacks and three times the rates of Hispanics, poverty also matters. The Education trust reports that young people from high income families earn bachelor's degrees at seven times the rate of those from low income families. For those students who do enter college, the National Science Foundation reports that the percentage of black Latino and Native American freshmen who intend to pursue a science or engineering major is higher than that for white freshmen. However, many of these students do not ultimately earn degrees in the sciences. This lack of persistence was documented in a longitudinal study conducted by the National Center for Education. It was found that non-completers were from families with which you might predict, with lower incomes, poverty matters, Where students were more likely to work 15 or more hours a week while trying to attend school. Among students, lower lower completion among students who attended those high schools with less rigorous curricula, schools where they were less prepared for what they saw in college. Um, Poverty matters, opportunity matters, preparation matters. Does education matter? graduates earn more. They're less likely to be unemployed. The annual earnings attained for high school dropout were more than $50,000 less for an individual with a professional or graduate degree. In 2011, the imp- unemployment rate for individuals with less than a high school diploma was 14.3. For those with a bachelor's or higher, was 4.3. Education matters. Dr. King was not only concerned about education, but recognized the importance of health and health care. And he stated, of all forms of inequality, injustice in health care is the most shocking and inhumane. Rates of uninsurance in our country continue to rise. In 2011, 16% of Americans were uninsured. We see a similar pattern for our children, particularly for poor children, where nationally 15% are uninsured in 2011. Here in California, for poor children, 18% uninsured. So does education matter with regard to health? Across all racial and ethnic groups, College graduates are more likely to report themselves as being in very good or excellent health, and also college graduates are more likely to report good mental health. The existence of health disparities is well documented. If there's anything we've done is we've documented it. Do we know what to do about it? No, but we document it. And there's virtually no place in health that you can look where you don't find disparities. And they exist across race and ethnicity, socioeconomic status. They're found in all dimensions of health care and access to care and types of care and clinical dimension. ARC, the agency, um, every year puts out a report about health disparities. And yes, we're moving forward somewhat, but they persist. If we don't deal with some of those social determinants of health, we are not going to be able to eliminate those disparities. Differences in awareness, access to opportunity, educational preparation, mentoring, contact with adults, guidance from adults, and institutional barriers hinder students' movement forward and their ability to achieve potential. What are the implications when we look at the health workforce in our country? And here I'm gonna focus on physicians, but you see a similar pattern across all groups. If you look at dentists, if you look at nurses, you see the similar patterns there. In 2008, approximately 12% of US physicians were from minority groups, Black, Hispanic, Native American, and Asian, as compared to where we are in our population. And if we look at a population that is increasingly minority, and of all states to talk about this in California, where California is majority minority, Boston is also, I'm
1: happy to say.
2: When we look at these differences across race ethnicity, we see the percentage of women is higher among racial and ethnic minority groups when we look at physicians. Um, And when we look within cohorts, uh, say of African American, we see that the percentage of women is higher among younger groups. So for those 34 or younger, more than 60% of physicians are women, as opposed to those 55 and older, where it is um, less than 40%. Um, there's also differences in representation of rep- racial and ethnic groups. If we move back from our simple terms of Asian or Hispanic or black, we see differences among uh, groups within these categories. Um, of note, I always find it fascinating that we've, start, we've reached a point in our country where we say, yes, we should break down Asian, and we should uh, look within that in terms of what it means, and we should look at it in terms of Hispanic. But we still are in this space where we think of it as there's one black, or there's one African-American, and lose sight of the fact that you could have Caribbean origins or African origins. And there's not just one black in the United States. And if we look at many of our academic institutions, that so-called African-American that looks like me, that's great-great-grandmother was actually born a slave here and whose family comes out of slavery, is actually rarer and rarer when we look at our academic medical institutions. So let's look at our numbers here. And what we see is that today, roughly 7.4, 7.5% of our faculty in our U.S. medical schools are underrepresented minority, black, Hispanic, uh, Native American. Um, For me, I've been doing this work for for more than 20 years, and I found it fascinating that after the Greter B. Bollinger case with the Supreme Court, that it jumped to 7.5% because before the case it was 5%. The important part in this is race ethnicities are social constructs. And they changed definitions. And when they changed definitions, we got a 2.5% increase. I don't think when you walked through your halls, you saw a difference in terms of who was in the halls. Um, if we look at this uh, and, and, and break it down in terms of pediatric faculty, it's 8.5% underrepresented minority. 34 black, 48 Hispanic, 11.7% Asian. We do better in pediatrics but I don't think we should be thrilled with 8.5%. Again, as we look at our pediatric faculty, we see a representation of female that is more in many other disciplines, Um, but we see a pattern here in pediatrics that we see across all disciplines in medicine where women are represented more so at the lower ranks than at the higher ranks and less likely to be in leadership positions. It's true for minority and for non-minority. So I go back here to this statement that clearly they have much work ahead of us. There is still much that needs to be done. Those barriers still exist. And if we are to change those numbers, change those percentages in academic medicine, in medicine, in healthcare, uh, we have to, prepare to be prepared to take action. Um, we as a nation have indeed continued to move forward towards our visions of equity and justice. Monday. This week, our president stated, quote, and because we have tasted the bitter swill of civil war and segregation and emerged from what dark chapter, uh, stronger and more united, we cannot help but believe that the old hatreds shall someday pass, that the lines of tribe shall soon dissolve, that as the world grows smaller, our common humanity shall reveal itself, and that America must play its role in ushering in a new era of peace, End quote. But with that, I want us to return to the Dahl experiment. The Dahl experiment that I described earlier was actually used in the Brown versus Board of Higher Education, where it showed what segregation does um, to our children, to our black children. How far have we come if we look at the 21st century version of this?
0: Do you remember, the, you were asked, what what skin color do you want? Do you remember which we you said?
1: Yeah, that one. Which one? This
2: one.
0: Why do you want that skin color?
2: Because... I don't know. I just... I don't know. Really...
0: Not sure? No. Yeah. What do you think of that skin color?
2: Well, it looks kind of whitish, and that's all I remember. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I want you. Why Why do you want that skin color?
2: Because it looks lighter than this kind because this looks a lot like that one. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I just don't like the way brown looks because the way brown looks looks really nasty for some reason. But I don't know what reason. Mm, that's all.
0: So you think it looks nasty?
2: Well, not really,
0: but sometimes. Sometimes. Can you show me the child that has your skin color? Thank you.
2: Okay. Show me the child that has the skin color you want. I want them. Okay. Show me the child who has the skin color you don't want. Show me the child you would like as a classmate. Mm -hmm. All of them. You like all of them as classmates? Mm -hmm. Why do you say all of them? because I don't really care what um, color they have. I said, I don't really care what color they have. Um, When you see this, it's understanding that these are our children, these are your children, these are your patients. This is the experience of patients that you see in your clinics. It's through understanding the policies and actions of the past that we can better identify the antecedents and precipitants of today's challenges. Hopefully we can use these understandings to create vehicles for change, ways in which we can move our profession and our society closer towards principles of social justice. We've arrived at a new day, a wonderful opportunity to rewrite policy, to redirect resources, to refocus. Pediatricians, children's health professionals, child advocates. Our voices must play a significant role in the discourse that will reshape health care in our country. The Affordable Care Act does address children's health care. There are provisions to eliminate pre-existing coverage exclusions for children and then extend the Children's Health Insurance Program through 2015. Pediatric benefit packages will be required to cover not only basic pediatric services but also oral and vision needs starting in 2014. Think about DeMonte, the little boy in Washington, Maryland area who died when he could not have a dentist take care of his abscess. Okay, still happening today. The Act expands the healthcare workforce, including pediatricians, nurse practitioners, specialists, and oral health professionals. But will there be diversity in that expansion? And it's up to us to make sure that that happens. It also promotes quality measurements and reporting and provides mandatory coverage for children who've been in foster care as they move forward. We must be willing to try to take the first step and the next step and the next step. In a week when we celebrate the life of Martin Luther King Jr., like he, we must be willing to commit ourselves to service to others. Disparities in health and health care, inequities in education, including access to educational opportunities, discrimination in employment, unfairness in housing, and injustice in the judicial system remain as challenges. But Dr. King also stated that, quote, every man must decide whether he will walk in the light of creative altruism or the darkness of destructive selfishness. This is the judgment. Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others, End quote. In the past, the rungs of the educational and health care ladders have been uneven. As our nation tried to ascend, we were uncertain, unsteady, and moved haltingly. As a result, we were left with glaring and persistent disparities. This millennium provides us with opportunities to change the paradigm. The rungs of the ladder must be made level. In January, we annually invoked the wisdom found in the words of Dr. King. Let us then be up to continuing what he began. Let us be willing to face the challenges he raised. Let us become leaders who embody the words of Robert Javik, who said, leaders are visionaries with a poorly de- defined sense of fear and no concept of the odds against them. They make the impossible happen. It is therefore up to each of us in our own way as individuals, as professionals, as members of a community, as organizations to make a difference, to dream, to find our own path towards making the possible happen. So my way of thinking about this, we each have the capacity to create the future we wish to see. Or Henry Ford, whether you think you can Or you think you can't. You're right. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.